Our scripture reading today is Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God's word. Well, welcome to Sojourn. We're thrilled that you're here with us to worship. We turn to God's Word each and every week knowing that this is the Word that sits in authority over us, that we need it to inform and instruct every area of our lives. We've been going through the Psalms for several months now, and we land at Psalm 121 this morning. This is a Psalm for travelers. And then it's a Psalm for travelers for those who are along the way, for those who, and as they're along the way, in danger and in need of protection is clear. If you look in Psalm 120, Psalm 121 is the second Psalm of Ascent. Psalm 120 is the first labeled as such. And in Psalm 120, here's what it says. A short one, we'll read it together. In my distress, I called to the Lord and He answered. He says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach and that I dwell among the tents of Keter. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Man, there's Psalm 120, we're going up, and then as the going up song is, they're full of distress. There's attacks, there's lying tongues, there's people in a foreign land that are trying to get to a different land. Maybe they're in exile. Maybe that's kind of the context of Psalm 120, the thought of there being in exile in Meshach and Keter, and, and there's war in their midst, and they're wanting to move toward the, the, the holy city of Jerusalem as Psalm 121 moves all the way to Psalm 122 that we've looked at before. That might be the very place that many begin their ascent to Jerusalem is in Psalm 120, in exile, in a dangerous place, in a, in a place that's, that's full of, of lying and deception and war and, and lack of peace as they move to a place where they're wanting to worship and honor God. And God's people were, were travelers along a dangerous road at times. And that has not shifted and changed for us, has it? And it's still true for us. Right? The Scripture, the New Testament says that, that we are sojourners, we are strangers, we're travelers, we're, we're not in our home, and the road around us is full of danger and threats, things that could harm us and take us out. And what we need as sojourners and strangers, as travelers along a dangerous road, is we need confidence in the Lord as we walk. And Psalm 121 is a psalm of confidence for travelers along the road. That the road is still dangerous is true, but the Lord is the keeper of his people. That the Lord is our help and our keeper. That's what Psalm 121 wants to give to us. That this Lord, our help, our keeper, is the one to look to 
in our dangers and in our threats. This is the one who never sleeps, the one who doesn't take a day off, the one who provides protection, who guards us when we're exposed. He watches us. He keeps us at all places and at all times. The Lord is our help and our keeper. This psalm is is meant to infuse confidence into God's people as they travel along a dangerous road. And so with the Psalm 120 context, what are these people going to need if, if they're in this place that's, that's in exile? They're not in Jerusalem and it's full of war and lack of peace. They're going to need some help as they ascend to Jerusalem. And so they ask, Psalm 121, verse 1, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? And perhaps they're, again, traveling to Jerusalem and there's hills, you know, a lot of it is a, a going up a, And some might look to the hills and think that there might be safety there. But likely on a journey like this, the hills are threatening. The hills are dangerous. They're they're full of of threats for travelers. They expose them to to dangers. There are steep cliffs. There are narrow passageways. There are lurking enemies, maybe some wild animals, treacherous weather that could bear down on them in a minute that would make it hard to travel any further. And with all of that potential danger, it makes sense for them to ask the question that they ask in verse 1. With all of this potential out there, where am I going to find help? And it's a good question. When you're in a situation where there are threats and dangers, it's a good question. Where do you look for help? Where are you going to find help? help. Now, in the original context, there, there could have been a temptation for people to trust in the hills themselves. That is, there were all kinds of high places that these other nations had with other gods. And on those high places, they thought, now our God dwells there and he reigns and rules here. So they might look literally to the hills and think, my help does come from that hill and the God that dwells on that hill. There's a temptation, I think, to look for help from various offerings from various gods. To think, trust this, and you're going to receive the help you actually need. There could be the temptation of trusting in other things. In Psalm 20, verse 7 says, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots. Now, for us, that's likely not our temptation, right? Don't think you've probably been tempted to trust in a horse today. But we do have the temptation to look to created things and find our help there. Like, maybe it's Military might. Maybe there's a little more application from horses and chariots. Chariots were a great military advancement. They were lethal in battle. And so maybe that's us. Maybe we look to military might or or modern sort of technology. Maybe modern medicine or modern wealth of some sort. Something along those lines. Something created that makes us think with with this thing as my help, everything's going to be just fine. Nothing can actually be that bad with all these things as my help. Or maybe we are tempted to trust in another way. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9 says, Some trust in princes, some trust in man. Some will look to the powerful, the mighty, to protect them, to keep them, to sustain them in the midst of a dangerous road. Some will just look to any man. And I think we could put in there, like the, the temptation to trust in man could be the temptation to trust in myself. There's a a rampant lie of self-sufficiency, isn't there? That that maybe with my knowledge or maybe with my might, maybe with my power, something along those lines, then I have all that I need. That that's enough to be my help. 
I can do it. I can fix it. I can get through it. There's self-sufficiency in the lie of self-sufficiency right there. And the answer to the question of verse 1, where do you look to to find help? Where do you find security? Whether it's in, in a God or some sort of religious system, whether it's in a, a, you know, some sort of created thing or a man or a prince, someone powerful, it's an important question to ask and the answer is really important. It is full of consequence for daily living. And the reality is that not all sources of help are equally valid or valuable. They're greatly distinct in their value. And Psalm 121, it doesn't want to leave the question open to any of God's people for where they should look in their time of need, where they should look for help. And so verse 2 answers the question that verse 1 gives. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the Lord, not another God that dwells on a high place. Like they couldn't associate this capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, with any of those gods. He was distinct. He was unique. He was the only one. He was separate from all. This is not another God. This is the one who had revealed himself and spoke to Abraham and made specific promises to this man, to a specific people. This is the one who then called him to go to a land that he didn't know. And from this man, Abraham, came a whole bunch of people. This is the God who made a covenant with them. Remember, he pulls them out of Egypt. When they were uh, helpless, he helps them and gets them out of Egypt. This is the one who, uh, at the Red Sea, what are they doing at the Red Sea? They're, they're surrounded, like I got a sea on one side, we got Pharaoh's army on the other side, and the Lord, he's their help there. And like he says, you just need to remain silent and see the salvation, the help that I'm going to give to you and deliver you. This is the same Lord who then brings them out into the wilderness, shows up to them on the mountain and makes a covenant with them, giving them his word to reign over them, to rule their lives as they live life with him. He makes a covenant with them and we could go on and on and on. He sustained them in the wilderness. He gives them food and water. He takes them into the promised land and is their help when there's people that are much bigger than they are in front of them. He does all of that. This is the one that he says that we ought to look to for help. This is the same Lord who in verse 2 it says he's the one who made heaven and earth. It's, it's hard to think of a, a more powerful uh, description of God than that. In other words, this is the Lord who, when you look your, take your eyes to the hills and seeing where your help comes from, th this help comes actually beyond the hills, well beyond the hills. To all creation, this is the one who made all of those hills. And this is the one who's the help. And some gods were said to rule different aspects of creation. That was a a normal thing in this original context. So this is the God of the, the mountain. This is the God of the river. This is you know, different various aspects. But here we have the Lord who is our help, who is the Lord of all. The, the, the one who made all of those things. He's over all of those things. And, and you remember how God created those things. He created them from nothing, out of nothing, with his words. Powerful words. At his word, the universe went exactly where he sent it planets obeyed his breath like it went exactly precisely to where he placed it and so when you're looking for help there's no better place to look than to the lord the maker of heaven and earth notice in verses one and two that the pronouns of i and my like the the man here who's saying this psalm in psalm 121 he's talking to himself he's preaching to himself in the in the best way possible like, I'm, I'm lifting up my eyes, and, and I need to know, where's my help come from? My help 
comes from the Lord. It's emphatically personal, and it kind of is as an invitation of sorts, isn't it, to, to readers, to, to us this morning, to ask ourselves, can we follow him in these pronouns and say, I'm going to lift up my eyes, and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Can we repeat those words along with the psalmist? And often, my first misstep in this very arena and thinking about where my help comes from is to think. Like, I'm looking up to the hills. Where does my help come from? And the first thing I look to is the strength of my looking or the intensity of my looking. I might be trying to look to the right place, but I start to focus on immediately not the Lord himself and my actual help from him, but, but how strong or how intense my looking is. But he says, no, your help isn't in the strength of your looking or performing. It helps from the Lord. Is the Lord my help? Could you say that? My security, the the place that I lift my eyes and my coming and going and my daily living. It's a statement, verses 1 and 2, a statement of faith and confidence in the Lord along the traveling of a dangerous road. And notice that in verses 1 and 2, as he lift up his eyes to the hills, like there's no indicator and no sign that help is forthcoming. He, he doesn't say, I saw a sign on the hills. Or that I know that, that if this boulder's in the right place, then I know that the Lord's going to be the one who helps me. There's none of that here. And that is often how it is, isn't it? That the one we look to, who, who made all things, like we may not see any sign or indication that he's going to help and do something. But we know that the one we look to, the one who made all things, is a God who has often helped, hasn't he? Again, go to the Exodus. Here's a helpless people. They can't get out from underneath slavery on their own, and God helps them. They go to the Red Sea. They can't get away from this army or through the sea on their own, and God helps them. They go into the wilderness, and they don't know where to find food and water, and God helps them. They move to the promised land. They said, well, they're giants. They'll destroy us, and God helps them. They go to a, a city that has high walls. There's no way we can take this city, and God helps them, and we could go on and on and on, and for us, we could say, hey, we have something that's way too big for us to overcome, and sin, and because of our sin, it's leading to death, and it's way too much for us, and what do we know of? We know of help in Jesus, Amen. the one who came and lived and died, defeating sin and death. So that when we look to this God and we have no indicator or sign that the help is forthcoming, we can know that this is a God who helps. And sometimes it comes in the strangest of ways, like through a baby. One author said this, that, that he can help. He can help them with water from rocks, sticks that sweeten bitter jars, jars of oil, enemy armies turning their swords on themselves, even the birth of babies, one baby in particular. The one who made all things can do all of this. He is a God who notoriously helps his people. And so we can look to him, even when there's no sign and indication that he's going to help, we can look to him in faith and confidence to be our help. And the help that he gives, as we've seen, as we think through the help he's given uh, through history, through the pages of scripture, is life-preserving help. Deliverance from enemy, kind of help. Salvation from slavery, kind of help. Heart transformation, kind of help. That's the kind of help he gives. I, I like what one author said when he said, how completely satisfying to turn from our own limitations to a God who has none. This is the God to look to to be your help. 
When there is no sign and indication that it's forthcoming, we don't need to give in to the temptation to look to another source because those sources can't be the help that we actually need like this God can. We need to keep looking to the God who made heaven and earth, the Lord over all. It may even be in in certain circumstances and situations where the road seems particularly threatening and dangerous that we actually need to say verses 1 and 2 to preach these verses to ourselves, to recite them to ourselves. We might need to say, I'm looking for help. Where is it going to come from? My help, I know, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. By faith, we can say that even when we're on this dangerous road or even we're in the the wilderness going down a, a dangerous road, even going down the road to death, that my help comes from the Lord. By faith, we can say that the dangers may be real and are real, but just as real as my help that comes from the Lord. And so verses 1 and 2, they're the statement of faith and confidence in the Lord's help that can be shared by all who know this Lord. And while verses 1 and 2 take on a a personal voice that matters, another voice is added in the rest of the psalm, verses 3 through 8. So he's preaching to himself, talking to himself. That's a big part of, of how we need to live. We need to speak to ourselves. That's massive. But that's certainly not the only voice that's needed in our lives. Or in the lives of God's people. It's not the only voice that's even prescribed in our lives or for God's people. Look in Psalm 124, verse 8. Very similar. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So is it my help or is it our help? It's yes, it's it's my help and our help. Both my and our are needed. Right? So both my and our are in the scripture. So make sure both are present. Don't have a, he's my help without him being our help. And don't have him being our help without having personalized it and being my help, right? We need both of those things, not one or the other. That will lead us into all kinds of errors. And what verses 3 through 8 do is they give us that other voice. Almost like they're pronouncing these things over us. Verses 3 through 8 are going to sound a lot like what Aaron's blessing was in in Numbers chapter 6. You remember that? The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And it's even kind of possible that Psalm 121 is kind of pictured, especially verses 3 through 8, as a priest coming alongside and pronouncing this blessing of verses 3 through 8 over God's people. He begins with these words in verses 3 and 4. He, notice the voice has shifted now. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We're introduced in these verses to this all-important word in this psalm. And and surely you've noticed by repetition what this word is. It's the word keep. It's used six times here. Six times. It's a word that's used of shepherds in Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say... He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. So there's some some meat on the bones for that word, keep. It's like a shepherd keeping his flock, watching over and taking care of every single lamb there. And it has this this sense of protection and guarding. Or, Or look at Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord watches, keeps the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So here's again, more guarding and protecting. Or in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, this is spoken of Adam. He used to work and keep the garden. 
a, a protection, a, a sense of reigning there and ruling there. Like there's a protection and a guarding that he is to do. So to keep is, is to be and to speak of God's protection and his kind providence to guide and direct things for the good of, of those under his care as a shepherd, as a guard. I mean, like you think about if you're in a battle, the safest place to go to is like you've got to fall back to the keep where, where you're fully protected. That's the Lord. He's the one who keeps us. And so like a shepherd who keeps his sheep, listen to what it says that he does now. He will not let your foot be moved. Shepherd wants to keep the sheep from stumbling, from falling, from slipping as they travel in the mountains and the difficult paths. He wants to keep them from falling in a way that might injure or harm them ultimately. And so how can God keep any from falling? Well, it says he can keep them from falling because he's always awake. He will not slumber. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's ever watchful, always on guard. It's as if like as a sheep walking the path, there's not one stone that he hasn't considered that's in front of them. Not, not one narrow pathway that he hasn't thought through. How do I keep the sheep on their feet as they go through this thing? I, I saw this uh, picture one time and it was of the Navy and it said like it had an aircraft carrier and had all the stuff on deck and it said Navy, U.S. Navy, 100% on watch and then the arsenal of of what is on watch on just full display and what they have on display and what they're doing when they're 100 on watch is saying we have all that's needed to both stay afloat and to take out enemies at any moment right we're always ready for that and, and there's the lord right he has everything that's necessary to both keep his people afloat and an arsenal uh, as the one who made heaven and earth to take out any enemies that are needed to be taken out and so when the Lord says he won't let your foot be moved, we can know that he's 100% on watch for that very reality. Now my guess is that in the Navy, that a few on watch in the middle of the night might not off from time to time. And every single one of them, they're going to take a shift, right? They're going to they're watch and then they're going to go sleep because they need sleep. Out of necessity, they will give sleep. The, the gods, uh, ancient Near East gods at times were, were pictured as sleeping, but not this Lord. He's the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps. There's, there's not one thing that passes by apart from his watch. Now, it may not always seem like that. Look at Psalm 44. There's other psalms like this, but listen to what Psalm 44 has to say. In verses 22 and 23, the psalmist says, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. That doesn't sound good. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I thought we were watching the feet of these sheep. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Right? That is the experience at times of God's people, where they feel as if he's gone to sleep and we're just being slaughtered. How could you be watching things? But Psalm 121 comes along and says, you need to hear this pronouncement over you as God's people, of a pronouncement of faith and confidence that this Lord that you might think is asleep and is just letting you be taken to the slaughter is actually a Lord who's not letting your foot be moved, who's always awake, that nothing again passes his gaze without him being 100% on watch. Now, we might not always know why things are happening, we, we may not always know why it feels as if we're just being led to the slaughter all day long. And it seems as if God is distant and unaware and asleep. But like Job, 
In the end, we're going to discover that God was never unaware, that he was never asleep at the wheel, that he was never off guard, that he has always been 100% actively engaged with his creation and with his people. Now, we may not see it in the moment, and great suffering might ensue, and we might feel as if he's gone and must be asleep, but we need to know and hear this pronouncement over us, he's not asleep. He knows all of these things, and he's not going to let your foot be moved, that those who trust in the Lord, our foot will not ultimately be moved. We won't slip beyond his care ever. And we can have confidence in that because he's always awake. Christian, we know this in particular, don't we? God, God is not unaware of our sufferings. He, he's not asleep in our pain and in our turmoil and in our distress. He felt it in the person of Jesus. He knows suffering, he knows pain, he knows what it is to be alone and abandoned. He's not distant in those things, he's with us in those things. Remember when he tells Saul, when he confronts him on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, now some of those Christians, as Saul was, was working for their demise and even murder, they might have thought, is God forgotten about me? And Jesus shows up and makes sure that the whole church knows in Acts chapter 9 that when you persecuted one of his own, you persecuted him. He, he wasn't asleep at that time. You were persecuting me when you did that, Saul. He, he knew that. Jesus is 100% on watch all the time. And because he was forsaken, we never will be. Our foot will never be moved. Even the grave isn't a place that he isn't awake to. He's actually been there and came out the other side. Death couldn't hold him so that when he says that he's the good shepherd who holds the sheep in the palm of his hand and no one can snatch them away, their foot won't be moved, no, we can trust him. This is the only one that's been to death and come out the other side. This is the only one who can trust and when he says, your foot won't be moved. We can know that the one who keeps us never slumbers or sleeps, and he is the one we can look to to keep us. And in a sense, for the sheep, that means that we can rest, right? He's awake, so we can rest. The Lord is our keeper. He keeps us. And this leads to the very center of Psalm 121, the very central point and the central pronouncement in verse 5, where it says that the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your keeper. Now, it might be really comforting to know today for you guys that the Navy says they're 100% on watch. But I think... It's more comforting to know that not just that if the Navy were 100% on watch for the United States, although I'm for that. Air Force too. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're 100% on watch, but you're always flying high or whatever their motto is. <laughs> don't want to exclude you guys. You're probably on watch too. And it is comforting to know that you're on watch for the U.S. What would be more comforting is to know that all of those forces are on watch for me personally. That they were directing and guiding every single thing for me, right? How much more should we take comfort from these words that the one who made heaven and earth, that, again, the, the ones that even are armed forces, like they don't have any sovereignty over all things, right? But we know the Lord who does have sovereignty over all things, and not just that he has sovereignty over all things, like kind of in general, but he says that he is your keeper in particular. He, he is this one who, who never sleeps, and it says he is your keeper. Psalm 121 says that to God's people. He, this is the one who guards your life like a shepherd. This is the one who watches over you like it's his very own city. Like, 
Keeper speaks to the idea that this God, he protects for you, he provides for you, his providence is always surrounding you, but also the idea that's present in verse 5 is that he's near. He doesn't provide a keeper. He is the keeper. Like he, That's who he is. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. And so he goes on to describe, the Lord is the, your shade on your right hand. Notice all the yours there. Your like again, it's not just he's a keeper in general. He's your keeper. If you've trusted in him, he's your keeper. And he's the shade on your right hand. Now, to, to help understand this, I, we're not quite to summer yet, but we, we know the, the devastation that heat can, can bring. We need shade in the midst of scorching heat. But think about Jonah's story. Jonah, he, he's gone to Nineveh. He's delivered kind of half-heartedly this message to them that they need to turn from their sins. And, you know. and then he goes outside the city to say, all right, God, let's, I'd love to see you destroy this thing. And so he builds a booth, keep out of the sun, and just listen to these words to hear a little bit of the devastation of the sun and then how it can bring devastation into a man's life. The Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort, from his discomfort, right? Discomfort from the sun. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Shade made him exceedingly glad. It refreshed him and helped him in the midst of some scorching heat. But when the dawn came up, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Like, he, physically, he's suffering here at this point, and it, so much so that he says, like, he wanted to die. Like, that's the devastation of the heat. So when Psalm 121 comes along and says that he's the shade on your right hand, that, that's not a small thing. That, that's a tremendous help in the midst of trouble. It's refreshing help. And then he's the shade on your right hand. Right hand would, would think of, of military terms. And, and in military terms, the right side, you got your left side, you got your shield. The right side, you got your sword. The right side is the side that's actually unprotected. Like you can be exposed on that side because you got your shield on the other side. That's the side that's a little bit more vulnerable and exposed to, to being cut. And so what you have here is you have the Lord who's the shade on your right hand. He's refreshing, life-giving Keeping is what he's giving. Needed protection in vulnerable places, exposed places. And all of this comes from the Lord who is your keeper. So that he could go on to say, verse 6, So good is this keeping that the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. With the day and night and moon and sun, the idea there is speaking of totality. All things here. All days, all times. Heat, scorching heat, bitter cold, both of them could have been known. And he says he, he's your keeper in all of those places, in all elements. It, it could even get at the idea of totality of things that are known and things that are unknown. Things that have been revealed and are out in the open and in the light and things that are in the dark. It, it might be, and I think it does even hint at some of the ideas of that God is your keeper inner, inwardly and outwardly. He's an inner and outer keeper. Think of sun and moon. Moon, we get the word lunatic from. Like lunacy, they would have thought like in the moon and nighttime, you, you have these horrors that come to your mind that, that can kind of drive you to lunacy, right? In the day, you, you're not scared by certain things you'd be scared by in the night. So in the day, if you hear a lion roar, that probably should bring some fear. But at night, oftentimes it's like the falling of a leaf can, can make us scared, right? Yeah, I, there's an idea of, of lunacy that could be there. And, and 
Verse 6 says that in those places that the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. It is total keeping from the Lord. Day and night, God has not forgotten. He is always watching as your keeper. And the totality of this keeping is perhaps relayed as we've gone through the psalm in, in a few other ways as we move to verses 7 and 8. In verse 1, you have the eyes. In verse 3, you have your foot. In verse 5, you have your hand. Like these are all ideas that are kind of adding up to in bodily words to verse 7. That the Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep your life. The totality of your life. The totality of your being. The reality for all of God's people is to know, and they do know this by their experiences, is that life, all of our life, is going to expose us to all kinds of evil. You could translate the word evil in different ways. Calamity, disaster. There's problems that life is going to, we're going to be exposed to in our life. And yet, what does verse 7 say? That that God's keeping, and he is your keeper, is extended to those areas as well. It extends to all of life. Now, what verse 7 doesn't mean is that he's going to keep us from all evil. In other words, there's there's no evil going to enter our lives, or no evil going to harm our lives. I, I like what one commentator said. He said, in light of other scriptures, to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well armed life, a well armed one. One where you might be exposed to all these evils, but the Lord is your keeper in those places. So you're well armed. The idea of verse 7 is more like Psalm 23, verse 4, that he's going to lead us through the valley. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Same word there. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they they comfort me. There's still dark valleys, but, but you go through them. And you go through them with the presence of God and his rod and his staff. In other words, God is concerned even with those places, those dark valleys, those evil times that come to us. Like he's there in the midst of it. One story that has impacted me greatly is the story of of Jim Elliott and his missionary friends that went down to South America and were missionaries there and were ultimately martyred for their faith, right? Uh, And Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, after her husband, four other missionaries also were killed, speared by this group of Indians that they were trying to reach. Listen to what they, she says when, when she was trying to decide, like, do I need to move? Do I need to stay? What do we need to do here? Here's what she says. She says, I found peace. Again, this is maybe days after her husband has been found dead. I found peace in the knowledge that I was in the hands of God. Not in the confidence that I was not going to be killed, that there wouldn't be evil, Dark valleys, not in any false sense of security that God would protect me any more than he protected my husband, the four missionaries, or another from those wooden lances. Simply in knowing that he held my destiny in his two hands and that what he did was right. That's what verse 7 is getting at. Not that we're going to be kept from wooden lances or dark valleys, but that he's going to be in the midst of us, holding us at all those times. And those hands that we are in are good hands. For the disciples, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 21. He says to them, and I think this is getting at the same idea as verse 7. In verse 16, he says, You will be delivered up by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but, but, verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. What? You, you will be delivered up, but not a hair of your head will perish. What is he getting at? He's saying not that, that evil wouldn't visit them, not that evil wouldn't harm them, not that evil wouldn't even indeed kill them, but he's saying evil is not going to have the final say on your life. Strike that. Evil's not going to have the final say even on your hair. That's what he says. That's the totality of God's care. That's the totality of God's guarding and keeping and the security he brings into the life of his people. He says evil doesn't have the final say even on your hair. The, the hair that we know in the New Testament, he has told us, is a hair that, that doesn't turn white or black without his knowing. The hair that he has actually numbered on your heads, that actually brings out even more intricacy and, and sovereignty that he knows every single hair. And he says, not one of your hairs will actually ultimately perish. Christian, your life is in the hands of that God. Your, your life is in the hands of his care of his protection, of his keeping. He is your keeper. Verse 7 is for us to know that he will keep us from all evil. He will keep your life. And then he punctuates this beautiful psalm with verse 8, this concluding thought. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, one commentator said the psalm ends with a pledge which could hardly be stronger or more sweeping. Like that's verse 8. It is strong and sweeping and it is meant to be. It is for the traveler who's along the dangerous road in a dangerous journey. Notice this going out and coming in. The, the home, the, the city, the, those would be places of protection. Like So when you go out of the gates, out from the walls, you're leaving the protection of your home base. You're leaving the protection of your city and its great walls that can help protect you. And you go out and work and return at night to safety. And there is a reason in the midst of that why Nehemiah was so like, set on making sure they rebuild those walls and get those gates set because they were exposed to their enemies, to great danger all the time, all around them. And so he wanted to build those things. And that's the, the concept that's going on here. Like there's a going out and a coming in that, that you're going out, you're leaving this place of refuge and safety and you're exposed to dangers. And so you want to come back. And here's what's going on in Psalm 121. It says the Lord actually keeps your going out and your coming in. In other words, you go always, wherever you go, with God's protection, at all times, forever. That's verse 8. There's not a time when he's not keeping his people. There's not a time when he's not 100% on watch. And there's nowhere that he is not with you. Like nowhere and no time do you go without his keeping. That's verse 8. In verse 8, again, we're met with some words that, that can hardly be overlooked on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection. Going out and coming in, remind of Jesus' promise in the Great Commission. It says, go and make disciples of all nations, like, and I'm with you always, to the end of the age. From this time forth and forevermore. Those words make us think that maybe it's not even just in this present life, but in the life to come. Like forevermore doesn't have an end. And God intends for his people to know that the grave and beyond the grave are part of his keeping as well. That he is still the keeper even in those places. 
After all, we are following the one who did lay down his life and took it back up again. Like he's traveled that road down into the grave and up from the grave again. He's traveled in that road. And so he can say, yeah, I laid down my life and I took it up again. And so what do you need to know? Chapter 10, verse 27 or 28, sorry, that I give them, my sheep, my people, eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He is the one who keeps your going out and your coming in from this time forth and and forevermore. This is the keeping of our Lord. Even unto death, He keeps us. And in our going out and in our coming in with this Lord as our keeper, like we have nothing ultimately to fear and great reason for confidence in Him. And so as we go through verses 1 through 8 and you think about your daily life and your traveling and your dangers and your fears and all the things that you're facing, what are you looking to? You're looking to what when this God is offered out to you as your keeper? Who or what could offer and deliver better care, better protection, better keeping than this God? Now the problem with Psalm 121 is not with the difficulties of the truths that he's laying out as if we can't understand them. It's with how few actually live in light of them. It's with how few actually live as if Psalm 121 is true for them. That's the difficulty. And guess what? God wants to meet us in that place. That's why this psalm was written. He knows the weaknesses of his people. Even in this psalm, in Psalm 121, God is helping us knowing those weaknesses, knowing that we don't live as if this is true at times, knowing that the problem is that we just won't receive this as truth for us. And so he helps knowing our weaknesses and fears and doubts and our burdens. And what does he give us in that place? He gives us Psalm 121. A psalm full of unrelenting affirmations for God's individual travelers and for God's collective travelers, for God's people as they sojourn on this earth, as they're strangers on this earth. Psalm 121 is for us. God's people need to know that they're in safe hands in God's hands. They're in secure keeping in His keeping, that they can then live and walk a life of confidence before Him and before others because He is their keeper. And Psalm 121 is a psalm, I think, that needs to be heard. So verses 3 through 8, he shifted from he's my help to, to this pronouncement over. And what I want to do is it's important that that's another voice pronouncing over. And, and what I think would be helpful is for you guys to just sit and listen. It be pronounced over you for a minute. Receive this from the Lord with all of your doubts with all of your fears, with all of your worries and concerns and anxieties as you travel along the road, with all of your potential threats bearing in your mind this morning, as we all always have with us, would you just hear these words again, verses 3 through 8, pronounced over you as from the Lord. Hear this, Christian. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in 
from this time forth and forevermore. If you've trusted in this God, let's, let's take a meal where we remember that this is true. A, a meal that reminds us that he will keep his word. He, he went down into death. He also took his life back up again. So that we would know as we travel along the road that he's going to come back for us and that he comes back for people that are truly his because he bought us with his own body and own blood. If you've trusted in this Lord, this meal's for you. A meal of confidence along the road. A meal of remembrance in a place that you could be forgetful. Be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't trusted in the Lord, this meal's not for you. We want you to trust in the Lord. We want you to know who the Lord is, that He can be your keeper, but you have to turn from sin into Him. And so don't take this meal, take Him instead. Let's pray together as we prepare. God, we celebrate now your greatest act of keeping us and of protecting us. We've heard from your Psalms over the last few weeks that the greatest threat to our well-being, the greatest problem in our lives is our sin. That's what we should truly be afraid of and even... Uh, without what you've done here at the cross, uh, we would be in terror of you because we would deserve nothing but your judgment. But your, your keeping of us is so good that you laid down your life for the sheep and that you took the beating, you took the wrath that we were in danger of and deserved and you have spared us. And God, if you have provided for us, if you have kept us in this thing, our greatest need, our greatest danger, then why would we not trust you in all of these other things? And so we rejoice in you today. And we remember that you gave your body and it was broken for us and that you shed your blood for us and you made a new covenant with all those who trust in you to protect us from the greatest danger, the threat of hell and death and judgment. We praise you today, Lord. Let us walk in that peace. Let us walk in that confidence knowing that the worst thing that could happen to us tomorrow will not happen because it happened to you. And give us joy. And let that good news be on our lips I pray that people would wonder why we can handle trials and why we have joy even when things aren't good and that they would inquire, what's wrong with you? Why are you okay? And that we would be able to tell them about our keeper who is our great help in time of trouble. Thank you, Jesus, for your death and resurrection on our behalf. Let us walk in the freedom that it gives us. In your name, I pray. Amen.